Our nation is at war. The Jewish people suffered a catastrophic attack on October 7th. We all know, of course, what happened. There was a brutal incursion, invasion. Hundreds, more than a thousand people were actually killed. Of course, we know more than 200 people were taken hostage. And this began, this spawned, this prompted, this war that's been ongoing now for a couple of months. And it's a, a fierce war. It's an intense war. It's a war with a horrific number of casualties. It's not so clear how much success there is in actually achieving the aims. Of course, there was the first hostage deal where, thankfully, we were able to recover more than 100 hostages. Uh, there was a few hostage rescue, the, the rescues that were successful. Of course, some of them that unfortunately went the wrong way. There are still more than 100 of our brethren, of our brothers and sisters that are held hostage by Hamas in Gaza, and the war is still raging. At this point, it seems like the army has kind of proceeded its way from the north of the Gaza Strip all the way down to the south, and now they're kind of at the last frontier of of Gaza in the city of Rafiah. We don't know what's going to happen. We hope that there's some solution that will guarantee the release of the hostages, and we hope that the aims of the war are successful. But, of course, our people, our nation, our brothers and sisters, their well-being, their stability is very much hanging in the balance. And I feel like, you know, in America, we can, of course, complain, oh, there's anti-Semitism, oh, you know, on campus, there are people that are suffering, and that's all true, and it's all legitimate. But I feel like as American Jews, there is a risk, there is a tendency for us to kind of move on with life. We get into our routine. And of course, it bothers us as Jews when our brothers and sisters are suffering. And of course, as people who are more sensitive to the spiritual realm, we want to pray more, we want to study more, we say to heal him more. But I do feel like at this point, it's been a few months, we've kind of unfortunately, at least, at least that's the tendency. Some of us have gotten maybe a bit too comfortable, a bit too used to it. Uh, you know, just just this week, in our community, in our shuls, after every prayer, after every tefillah, they say some psalms. They say some tehillim. Of course, we know tehillim, psalms, the psalms of David, the prayers of David, these were always historically considered to be the prayers of the Jewish people. And we kind of hitch a ride on David's back, and we try to pray and channel his connection with Hashem to try to get success in what we need. So after every single prayer in every minion, every davening in our community, they recite the Tehillim and then have the prayer of Achenu called Beis Yisrael, and that's a beautiful thing. But I did notice that when the war started, they would say three chapters of Tehillim. And then after a month or two, it was down to two. And now it's one very, very quickly. And to me, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bad sign because it's, to me, it shows a little bit of, you know, us kind of ignoring the plight of our brothers and sisters. So I, I said like this, whenever I'm the chazin, I'm saying three slowly. That's what I said. So I was the chazin uh, one day this week and I said, I'm doing three of them. 
And afterwards, someone commented. He's like, oh, you really said the Tehillim, right? You really said the Psalms. I said, yeah, of course. You know, our brothers and sisters are, are suffering. We're not, we have to pray to do what, at least what we can, the, the bare minimum. He's like, well, why didn't you do five? I said, well, if I did five, there would be a revolt. But please, God, next time if I don't forget, I'm doing five. And I told him, I said, I know. My wife's aunt, she says the entire book of Psalms every single day. Every single day. I did comment uh, to my son while I was driving to, to high school, driving him to high school. I did comment to him about what happened. And he's like, oh, it's so long. The prayer is so long as is. Why would you add that to your prayer? I said, listen, if it was your actual brother and sister, your, your, your blood relative that was stuck in Gaza, and you don't know if they're alive or they're dead, if they're, if they're, if, if they're injured, if they're being tortured, you have no idea. Would you, would you pray? Would you want to make sure that every day that you pray as much as you can? Do at least what you can from a distance to try to help them? Of course you would. These are our brothers and sisters. And I, I want to make a clarion call for all of us to, to, you know, to re-examine, are we doing enough and what else can we do? And today I have the great privilege of having on the podcast a real dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Alan Kritz from North Carolina. We've been friends for a very long time. We study on a regular basis and the doc took upon himself the initiative to say, I want to go to Israel. I want to spend time. I want to tell my patients and my clients and my friends, I'm out. I'm going to Israel. I'm going to crisscross the country. I'm going to meet people. I'm going to study to see what I can do to help, to see how I can pitch in. And when we spoke after Dr. Chris came back, he's like, this was a life-altering experience. And I wrote that down, life-altering. To me, when you hear that, you know there's something very significant. So I wanted to bring him onto the podcast. He could tell us about his trip, about what he, what he saw, who he met, what he heard, what he sensed about what's actually happening on the ground. It's a great privilege. It's a great honor to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kritz. Thank you, Rabbi. Appreciate it. It took it took a long time to get you on the podcast. <laughs> took a very long time, but and and I've been learning and studying so much uh, with Rabbi Wolby uh, these last five plus years that I'm a changed person. Even when I go to Israel, I'm a changed person. So that that was definitely part of it. And I've been to Israel. This I think was our sixth time I went with my wife. So the the genesis of this trip was really uh, maybe threefold. Um, first of all, I am as as is my wife. We are very very pro-Israel. We think Israel is just part of being Jewish. Um, and we've all had a very strong tie to it for many years. We have some friends there, although we don't have relatives. When And when the war happened, after we just kind of got our footing into November, I began to feel, you know, maybe we should go. This may be the right time to go. And then one of my cousins, actually, he just got back last week. He went on a different trip. He said, we should try to go. And my initial thing was, well, you know, I have so many patients. I have to put my vacation time in six months in advance. It's always very difficult. So I, I had that little bit of hesitation. And then actually what what I, I listened to one of Dr., uh, Rabbi Wolby's podcasts recently, about six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, with one of his, uh, another a friend of his who had gone to Israel. And that was like, I have to go. So, but I wanted to get the right trip. And it's hard to know. There's very little, tri- there's, there's some missions going on right now, but not a whole lot. 
And the community, I'm, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, the community that's about an hour and 20 minutes away that my daughter lives in is Greensboro, North Carolina. And their federation organized a trip uh, and we were uh, invited to go on it. So we, we jumped at it. And I just have to give uh, a huge amount of credit uh, to that federation and, and their director, Glenda, for organizing a, a super interesting, wonderful, intense trip. And I had to cancel about a hundred patients that week. And somehow my staff, when they, when they heard why I was doing it and, and none of them are Jewish, they were all for it. So that was, so the genesis was those type, those kind of issues that, that got us going and, and so glad we did. Well, excellent. And you told me that it was only a three and a half day trip, but it was, it was three and a half day trip, three and a half day trip. Uh, yeah, we, we literally, we flew out, uh, Sunday night from, uh, JFK. Got to Israel Monday at around 11, hit the ground running. Um, and for the next three and a half days until 1.45 a.m. Friday morning, uh, we were pretty much doing things the whole, the whole, uh, three and a half days that we were actually there. But as one of the people on the trip said, uh, we squeezed two weeks worth of stuff into, into, um, a, a three and a half day period. So yeah, it felt even great just getting to the airport at, at, at JFK and just just we were at El Al and it was just great being among our fellow Jews at this time. Everyone of which was going to Israel, so that that even felt good. Well, just thank you so much for going. I do feel like if if the podcast had somewhat of a role in nudging you to go, so you kind of represented all of us, and we we do appreciate that. So take us with with you. What happened? Let's go through your trip so you could kind of bring us with you to our brothers and sisters in Israel. Sure, sure. And, and this trip, the way we looked at it is this was a kind of solidarity mission, witnessing mission, a grieving mission, grieving with people, and then fact-finding mission. Because what we hear in the United States, and I, I'm not traditional uh, in the sense that I'm not orthodox, so I'm, I'm hearing multiple news sources and a and they're not very pretty in terms of what is said about Israel. So we wanted to go. And again, I went with my wife and it was wonderful that we were both there just because we could. This was such an intense, this was such an intense experience that it just takes time to absorb it and digest it. And fortunately, I was with 1,500 wonderful people, mostly from Greensboro, a few from a couple other places that we spoke every night to try to absorb what we were actually seeing. But it was great. And again, Shout out to Greensboro, great, great federation. I was so glad to be part. Now, of it. Are, you, are you telling me that the what you pick up in the American media is not accurate? Is that what you're telling us, Dr. Kritz? Hard to believe. <laughs> the it's media believe. cannot be trusted. Is that what you're telling us? Hard to believe. Yes, and I'm, I'm an avid New York Times reader, and I've been threatening to cancel my subscription for about 20 years, uh, and a little more intensely over the last um, over the last four months. So we hit the ground. The first place we went, and, and again, I don't, ha- I, I could be inaccurate with a few of the things I'm telling you because this was an intense trip. We try to document it. But the first thing we did was we went to, um, uh, Gilot, which is north of Tel Aviv, uh, to an organization called Brothers and Sisters for Israel. So the way I've, I kind of divided this in my, in my mind as I was thinking about this trip, the first day, the first morning was learning how Israeli society was adapting and supporting each other. And then that afternoon was really focused on, on the hostage issues. But in the morning, the first, uh, in the, when we, we first got there, we went to this uh, group, which I, I didn't know anything about, but basically this was a group. And if you guys remember October 6th, 
Israel was in crisis, and Israel's really been in crisis through a lot of 2023 politically. This, and I'll get to this later because uh, we've had a few people that discussed it. The fabric of Israeli society was coming apart. I mean, these were not minor protests. These were hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, it, it was very, very difficult. And this, and the group was called, it was interesting. The group was originally called Brothers in Arms. Uh, and the reason it was called Brothers in Arms is this was a group of people who were primarily protesting what the Netanyahu government was doing. The, ju- um, the judicial and, reform. And the, that's what you're referring to. The judicial, the judicial reform, reform. Yes. That, that's correct. Yeah, because before reform. the war, for a few months already, the, the government had passed uh, some laws, some some laws that changed, I guess, the role of the judiciary in the in the country, and those were very hotly contested and kind of spilled over to a lot of uh, public protests. And he said this group, Brothers in Arms, they were protesting against the government. Against the government, and the guy we met with was a, a navy retired navy colonel, and and what he basically did, he organized navy veterans, and and the group was made up of ex military students, high tech people. A lot of people who are against uh, who are against the judicial reform for a variety of different reasons. So that was October sixth. October seventh, everything changed. They changed their names from uh, brothers in arms to brothers and sisters from Israel for Israel, and they had basically three principles at that point. They were going to fill in the gaps that where the government wasn't uh, on October seventh, uh, support civilians and and be unified and stop the protests. So this group came together and the amount of effort and work and things that they did was, was staggering because again, this was all volunteers and it was not like centrally organized. It really reminded of uh, the way the tech industry works in Israel and everyone's kind of doing different things and, and somehow it pulls together. So the first thing they, they focused on were the soldiers that Israel called up all these reserves. All the reserves had no way to get, get places. So they, they were sending cars all over Israel to pick up soldiers and bring them down to different bases. They were, a lot of the soldiers would get down, there was not enough food. Uh, they were organizing, um, you know, food drives to get food down to the soldiers, to get um, equipment down to the soldiers, including clothing down to the soldiers. So that was like the first few days. Then the giant gap was that there were a whole bunch of missing people that were either dead, hostage, or, or just or just missing. And the government had no track, and there was no centrally, there was no central organization of what was going on. And again, this this was scattered through multiple different communities in the South that this happened. So they literally got 400 people together. It was led by a, a professor um, at one of the universities there, 400 tech people working together in like a war room. Again, this is not government. This is this is just these are just volunteers trying to use every technology to figure out who these people were and and try to get a handle on that so they could let let family know. It was an unbelievable uh, amount of, of work they did. And I think um, this is one of the themes that, you know, me from afar, I, I've, I've sensed that, you know, a lot of people point to the fracturing of Israeli society before October 7th as being perhaps something that contributed towards Hamas thinking, well, we got them on the ropes, they're fighting amongst each other, maybe they're more vulnerable and uh, the truth is, is that, you know, there was unprecedented uh, protest and, and conflict internally, but then this terrible attack happens and it's almost like that just disappears or at least it's it's suppressed because ultimately, at least the Jews in Israel, they have a sense of brotherhood and kinship with each other that 
will override some of the, you know, the petty political disputes uh, that may, you know, be very vitriolic and may be very strident about them at the time. But push comes to shove when the enemy is actually coming to attack us, try to kill us, regardless of what type of Jew we are, they want us dead, right? That kind of awakens that inherent brotherhood. You know, who, who fights more? You, you know, your, your two sons or your son and the neighbor's kid? The, the brothers fight more than anyone else. I've been reliably told. <laughs> Brothers fight, but that's almost almost like a reflection of their of their inherent inherent brotherhood. So you're saying the, these people who kind of symbolize one side of the political debate, they they kind of took the attack as an opportunity for for them to kind of find ways to help unite the nation together. Exactly, exactly. Not only unite the nation together, but fill in all these gaps of things that. You know, you know, the government was completely not ready to deal with. I mean, but the government was really just mobilizing its military. But there were all these things that that come up that, you know, all of a sudden there are 100,000 people displaced. Um, and, and they started to kind of focus on that, how they were going to deal with mm. all the evacuees. And the, the gentleman who led us through this thing, his name um, is uh, Ronan Kohler. His wife's a psychiatrist, child psychiatrist, and she flew down to a lot a few days later. And she basically, she was absolutely blown away by the stories she was hearing, the amount of trauma that she a, a lot there. is that where some of the displaced yes, we're, people we're, were. That, that's right from the neg from the um, from the uh, from, from the Gaza envelope, yeah, from the Gaza envelope. Yes. Uh, a bunch went south uh, initially, and so she went down there to uh, to to sort that out, and was just stunned. So when she reported that back, they started focusing a lot of what they were doing to help meet the needs of all these displaced people, get them into hotels. Again, this was not organized by the government, how this all happened. It just, it just, it was, they say 40% of Israeli society is volunteering right now. Unbelievable. And, and, and so you saw one organization, but the truth is we've all heard stories about so many different efforts and initiatives and organizations that kind of sprung up and mobilized uh, to, to help, like you said, fill, fill in the gaps and also just pitch in wherever, wherever, wherever was needed. And I'm sure you saw that, that throughout your trip, right? Sorry? That's probably something you, you saw throughout your trip in so yes, many different yeah, ways. I mean, 40% of the population volunteering. Just think Unbelievable. about I mean, what is it in the United States? A half a percent or something like that? I mean, it's just, it's, it's just staggering. And, and things that you didn't even think about, like, there was a lot of deaths. Uh, they had to get Shiva kits in, into different families all over the country that lost, that lost people. They were helping to reestablish schools. It, it, it was a huge amount of work that they that they that they started to do. So that was that was really the first that was really our first um, taste of everything, and just in, in how the society was traumatized and yet quickly pulling together, at least initially. So that was that was the first thing we did. Then we went um, to Hostage Square in Tel Aviv. And I don't know if the audience has seen pictures of Hostage Square, but it's a fairly cement-like area outside, um, I think, one of the museums. And it is just strewn with photographs, artwork. Um, they have a simulated tunnel, so what people will get a sense of what it's like to be in a tunnel. Uh, they have um, – there's an area where they're selling – just, you know, caps to bring, bring pay people home and t-shirts. It, it's a very sobering, intense place. And we spent about 
45 minutes just walking around there. And then we met with uh, a woman. Her name was her name is Sharon Calderon. And and again, and I apologize that I did not get all the information, but she was in a kibbutz, uh, stuck in a safe room with her husband for 34 hours until she could get out. Uh, her kids were in other apartments, and they were kind of WhatsApping each other. Uh, a good friend's husband was killed, and the reason we're meeting with her is her brother-in-law and niece and nephew were taken hostage from uh, Kibbutz uh, Neuroz. And she, the um, so she went through that initial trauma by herself and her husband and then the trauma of having the hostages. Her niece and nephew were released with that first wave of hostages that, that came out, and her uh, brother-in-law is, is, still, is still a hostage. So hearing her story was incredibly intense, and I'll just... I can just read something uh, that she said uh, towards the end, which is that her husband finally went back to the house that they were in, and she said, you, he brought us some clothing, and she says, you know, these aren't my clothes anymore. I'm not the same Sharon that wore these clothes. I don't know if I'll go back. I love my home, but home isn't a place. I don't know if that can be our home again. We'll see. have to wait until my brother-in-law comes back, and then we'll decide. So just the, the rippling trauma, and again, she was not taken hostage, but she's just a family of a hostage member. So that really, that was fairly jarring for us because the hostage issues have become more and more intense over the last bunch of months, and we were just thrust right into that because there's a war going on where we're trying to destroy Hamas, and yet on the other hand, there are there were originally 240 hostages, now there's maybe 100 left that are alive, and we're, and we're dealing with that right now. So this, this really brought it to life. And all over Israel, you're seeing, you're seeing pictures of, of the hostages. It, it is, it is everywhere. And just for clarity, the hostage square was not always called hostage, hostage Correct. square. Correct. That's right? a whole new, they, they right. just, they just took over an area. Right. And it's, is it full of people? You guys sense that there's a lot of people there to, you know, show solidarity? Cause there's not so many foreigners as we know in, in the country. Yeah, when we were there, it was raining pretty hard. So there, there are just people kind of wandering through. I think it probably waxes and wanes, but just wandering through is a sense I got. It's a very, a very astute point that you brought up that, you know, there were 250 or so hostages and, you know, there was a, thankfully the release of, you know, 100 or so, a little more than 100 and there's 100 plus there now, but that's not where the trauma ends. You know, they all have relatives and cousins and, and neighbors. And people that were almost taken hostage, and then you know, there's there's no. I, I, when I when I heard when originally we we heard this, there's just no home in Israel that doesn't have some sort of connection to someone who was directly affected. You know, the, with with one degree of separation. So it's, yeah, it's like it's like national through. national trauma. Yeah, this is Israel is a very traumatized society right now. It is it is a resilient society, but it is very traumatized. And yes, the, the separation, everyone knows someone who was either killed, taken hostage, or displaced. Um, right, because again, there's a, a hundred thousand or so, you said, uh, right from the, the north the and the south yeah. that were, that, that are still, are still displaced, right? I still have yeah. not gone back to their homes. Right, right. And that was, and that's, that was a very, that was also jarring, uh, as we, as you'll see when we get to our hotel. Um, so I'll, I'll just say the next thing we did is we met with, um, uh, on this hostage thing, we, we met with a man named uh, Nadav Tamir, and he runs the Hostage and Missing Person Family Forum. And this is a group that was really has been the activist in trying to get the hostages home. So that's their fundamental thing. The, the first group is focused on 
you know, supporting all the Israelis around the country who need support. This group is, let's get the hostages home. They're the ones who are having press contacts and sending out teams all around the world just to get, just to get support to, to keep raise awareness, home. raise awareness. Yes. But are they of the opinion that they should get the hostages home at all costs? Because this is, like you said, this is the tricky situation. Because, you know, Israel said, we're going to go to war. We have two aims, to get rid of Hamas and to get back our hostages. And, of course, to restore, you know, security and stability. But some of those objectives seem to be at odds with each other, right? Because if right. Hamas will say, okay, we'll give you, you know, 100 hostages, but you have seven days where there's no fighting, or 10 days, whatever, two weeks of no, no fighting, then you have a conflict between two of your primary objectives. And that's, I think, intensifying as we get kind of closer to this, to the end of the campaign, whatever that looks like, uh, there are still hostages there. And it seems like Israel's grappling with the, the dilemma, the dilemma that we, we hope to never have to make of what do we choose? Do we choose to allow Hamas to survive and try to save our hostages? Or do we choose to try to, you know, which one of these two objectives is going to supersede the other one? And I'm sure I'm sure you picked up a sense of that oh, of that God, national yeah, dilemma. That, 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 that's a that's an intense debate that Israelis are having right now. And again, part of it's who we were exposed to, but clearly the people we were exposed to were leaning more towards we've got to get the hostages out. We're not going to destroy Hamas anyway. There's a hundred people we can save. Let's get them out. I mean, that was I think that that sense is rising in Israel to a certain extent. But certainly not with everyone. I mean, uh, and, and not even with the hostage families. It was, it was pointed out to me that the hostage families, some are right wing, some are left wing. They're not all left wing. And, and uh, some feel that it's not worth the cost. They don't want to have, you know, have to have another fight with Hamas in two years or three years. So it's not it's not uniform among the families. But this this group is certainly making it an activist position. And I'm sure it's it's a, a little bit of a thorn in the side of uh, the government. No, I, I think the, I think that's legitimate. It's a, it's legitimate okay. because both of yeah. these objectives are supremely important. And you know the uh, the government. I'm hearing this from a lot of Israelis that you know I'm hearing in the media and people I'm talking to. The government does not have legitimacy if it cannot do both. It has to find a way to thread that needle and do both. Right. I heard someone today. I was listening to. Uh, a Hebrew language podcast. I listen to these Hebrew language podcasts and my daughter's like, you don't understand that, right? Cause I put it, you know, I put it in fast also and it's Hebrew language. Well, one of the, one of the people that was interviewed, he was saying, if there's a single hostage left behind, there's even one left behind, the government loses its legitimacy, which I thought was a very strong statement, but I, but there's a very powerful idea. You know, if you're a government, if you're a sovereign nation and you have a terrorist organization, which is maybe a de facto state, but come on, it's not really a state compared to the state of Israel. And they just could bully you like that and take your citizens, your innocent citizens as hostages. It does call into question legitimacy of your, you know, of your sovereignty. So you need to do both. You cannot allow Hamas to endure and you cannot allow a single hostage to be left behind. And I don't know how you do both of them, but that's what has to happen. That's what has to happen. I, I feel like the, the, this war cannot end before those two missions objectives are fulfilled. And, and again, I, I don't envy anyone who has to make any of these yeah, no, calls and trade-offs. An position. To be in leadership right now is really difficult, but it's um, it, it's so raw right now in the, in the Israeli public right now that this is this is what they're talking about, and whether 
whether this is even feasible or not getting these high. It took five years to get um, Gilad Shalit out, and they had to exchange a thousand Palestinian prisoners for one. So I, I don't know Hamas is ever giving all these hostages up, but clearly that's that's become more and more important. And, and the other thing I heard, which was disturbing, but it makes sense, is that when the first wave of hostages was was uh, released, it actually there was. A little bit of relief, but it also it made the wound even more raw. That people just felt even more intense about the situation because there were still at that point 130 hostages, so that were left behind. So I don't know Israeli society heals until either the hostages are all returned or the hostages you know have been killed. Just that issue is just so intense right now. My sense, again, as a total foreigner, just an observer, my sense is that there's a degree of determination in Israel that there wasn't previously. Uh, determination, again, collectively, of course, you know, we're, we're, we can't talk about every individual, but there's a collective national determination to do whatever it takes to achieve both of these objectives, which is why I'm surprised that Israel hasn't caved to any of the international pressure. We're used to that, right? We're used to Israel caving to pressure and, and, and capitulating and yielding. And, you know, they've gone through Gaza. And we don't know how successful it is and we don't know what to believe and all that. But we are seeing an intensity of resolve and determination to try to achieve these two, these two objectives. I wouldn't have predicted that they would have that resolve. And they're going out to, to Rafiach, it seems like. It seems like. So, you know, what, what can we say? We just hope and pray that, uh, that they have, uh, that they have tremendous success. And like you said, we, we don't want to be making these decisions because it's, it's life and death. It's legitimately life, life and death. And you know, there was a beautiful story, uh, a few days ago where they, they rescued two hostages. Right. You know, they went in and, yeah, the, the reports are just very dramatic and it's, it's, it brings a, an elation to the heart to, to think about you know, these two people that were just indoors, you know, held by a family, which is crazy. Like just, we think of like civilians, you know, there's the terrorists and there's the civilians. This is a civilian family that's just, you know, you're responsible for these two and, uh, they were making them dinners apparently and they, they had some sort of intelligence and they, they went in, they blew open the door, they, Within a few seconds, they just grabbed the hostages and shot the terrorists, blew up the building, and left. So it's 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 a beautiful thing, but you know we hope that that elation and that redemption can be spread to all the hostages and all those who need the salvation. So uh, the next thing I'll just uh, briefly talk about is we met that night with a, a woman named Tal Shalev, who is a, a reporter. So we met with her in our our hotel that night. And she just went over some of the political things and just worth uh, a couple of things worth pointing out. She she felt that uh, uh, Benny Gantz and uh, Eisencourt uh, joining the war cabinet was very, very important that it, it number one is Israel was ready to go to war with Hezbollah at the same time. And they kind of walked that back. And they also said that they're really trying to get the hostages back. They're kind of pushing and moderating the government. So that was kind of interesting. There was a sense they, they love Biden in Israel right now. I don't, I don't know how long that's going to last, but they, a lot of them like him better than they like Netanyahu. They felt that him going to Israel so early on in the war was such an important solidarity uh, for Israel. They understand that there's a lot of posturing going on right now with both Netanyahu and Biden because of political issues. But one thing she said, um, which I think people are beginning to get a sense of, she said the soldiers coming back from Gaza 
are basically saying Hamas is everywhere. The indoctrination is everywhere. It's not just, it's not just the, the terrorists. It is everywhere. You know, they're going into houses and they're saying all this Hamas signs, propaganda. So just, just to be aware of that. Uh, and they find, um, and this was interesting all over the world. We're seeing terrible protests, right? Against Israel and, and how the Gazans are suffering. In Israel, they're not seeing that news. That is not being shown. Uh, Israelis are not following it, uh, and they don't, and they don't really care. I mean, to them, October 7th caused, caused all this. There was a ceasefire on October 6th and October 7th, they called it. So, so then that interesting. So it's just, it's interesting because we in the United States, we're fed all this every day. They get the Gazan casualties and how terrible it is. Israelis are not hearing that. They are finding the lack of support around the world very frustrating and they do appreciate the diaspora support. And speaking of that, I, I can't tell you how many times we heard throughout the trip, people were like, wow, you came to Israel in the middle of a war? They were like stunned to see, you know, a group of Americans coming to Israel. I, I think this is more and more is going to happen, but they were just so stunned and, and, and grateful. And that, and that felt really good. Well, you know that uh, I know nothing about politics, but I will note that uh, Gadi Eisenkot, his his own son, was killed in the war, right, right. which is yeah. an unbelievable thing. You know, he was the chief of staff, which in Israel is like the you know the highest military man. Uh, he's uh, you know uh, one of the political leaders of of one of the parties in in the government. He's part of the the war cabinet, uh, the smaller war cabinet, and his own son died in an operation. Which is, which is tragic, but I, I feel like it does show the, the, the Israeli fighting spirit that, you know, the, the son of, of one of the most important generals in, in the country, you know, he, he's going, he's leading men into war and endangering himself like, uh, like, uh, like all other. Now we'll add another point that you mentioned there. In Gaza, Hamas is everywhere, but that may lead to the impression that Hamas is not popular elsewhere amongst the Palestinians. Oh, the West Bank, as it's called, right there. Judea and Samaria, their Hamas is not popular. Actually, the opposite is true. They're way more popular than their quote-unquote PLO, the, the moderates, right? With moderates like this, who needs, uh, who needs extremists? But in the strongholds of Fatah, of Abu Mazen, right? Mahmoud Abbas, however he's called, right? They have a lot of different names. Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, PLO, uh, PA. In those strongholds, Hamas is very popular, and that's why they haven't had an election since 2005, because they would have lost to Hamas. And I just saw recently a poll that shows that it's like 80-something percent, almost 90 percent of Palestinians not in the Gaza Strip approve of Hamas, approve of the October 7th massacre. So this this fiction that, oh, we just, you know, we, we have to find those moderates and we'll make that coveted. You know, two-state solution, it, it's just, you know, we are dealing with a people, again, not everyone, of course, and not everyone, even if they support it, will actually act upon it. Of course, of course, of course. But still, the the notion that there's the possibility, a real legitimate possibility of some sort of two-state solution, it's just fiction. It would be nice if we could have it, it just we don't. The conditions are not such uh, uh, to have it. Because again, Hamas is everywhere in Gaza. Those same sentiments are everywhere amongst the Palestinians. Yeah, I think the 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 we spoke to like I think a, two reporters and a, and a uh, historian, and I think the general feeling is that if anything, 
this is going to harm Israel. And, and, and obviously we're hearing that things are trying to be superimposed by the world, but, but this is going to, this is a setback. Whatever little left group of, was left in Israel, this, this has completely crushed it right now. So I'll just, so that, by the way, that was day one. That was half day one. Wow. So I'm just trying to show you how many, how much we squeezed in. The busiest day was day two. The most intense day was day three, but day two, I'll just kind of summarize a couple of things. Um, in the uh, first thing in the morning, we met with um, a woman who is uh, one of the directors of the Federation of North America. And um, what she started to say is that globally now Jewish people view the world differently. And she just threw out, you know, at this point, 13,000 people have been injured. There's still 136 hostages. There are 100,000 people internally displaced. There are 300,000 people called up for reserve duty. There have been 11,000 rockets shot into Israel. And so the Federations of North America raised uh, $775 million, so almost three-quarters of a billion, more than three-quarters of a billion dollars so far, and more is coming in, which is a huge amount of money, unprecedented. And she just talked about some of the needs and how they're procuring this money because some of the organizations I talked about earlier on, they need this, they're getting some of this money and some of this help. But I, I think it just goes to show that in the United States, there are, you know, there are things we can do and certainly giving is important. And the amount they've already, I think, dispensed 300 million of the 775 million. She went through some of the processes that they do, but initially it's like basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, then medical and trauma relief, uh, economic relief and recovery. The, the small businesses there um, and medium businesses, they need loans. Uh, businesses are going out of business. And just dealing with these communities that have had such such trauma and little things that you don't think about. Um, uh, high school kids can't take certain exams. Soldiers that have to, can't go to the university. Just it, it really is so disruptive for the whole society. So that's kind of what, what what Federation nationally is doing. There's been about 50 Federation missions. We were one of them so far in four months. I think, uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but I think this fits into what you said earlier. You know, 40% of Israeli society, 40% of Israelis are volunteering in some capacity. So everyone's involved in the war, both to be an active contributor towards the war effort, but also, like you said, the suffering, the economic, the educational, just the suffering and, and the toll, if you will, of the war is really reverberating throughout everywhere because the, 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 the the nation so small, and the military is so intermeshed, and the, certainly the uh, the reserves are there's they're so enmeshed in the society. Really, the war is affecting everyone in every in every dimension, and uh, yeah. and there's there's so many there's so many areas where there needs you know there's a need for for help. Yeah, our um, our tour guide basically said the tourism is six percent now what it normally is. You know, there's, there's very big Christian tourism in Israel, and that and that's essentially completely vanished. So the yeah the economy is is just beginning to feel this and it's going to get a lot it's going to get dramatically worse before it gets better and and certainly people are coming to Israel to volunteer but that, that doesn't that's not going to solve this solve this problem so that was that was first thing in the morning and it was just it, it's just nice to know where the money's going how the money's going the needs that we see in Israel and that, that's what we can do the next thing we went to is was the um, the foreign affairs ministry uh, uh, ministry which. Never been in before. That was kind of interesting. And we met with two ambassadors. Uh, one was an older guy, Mordecai Gold, previously been in Morocco, Switzerland, Rome, Italy, and most recently Austria. 
And by the way, we were in Austria in, uh, on October 9th and Austria was flying the, uh, Israeli uh, flag on one and on their government buildings, which was, which was great to see. And he took a little credit for that. The other one was, so, so he's, he looked, he, he was like more of an Ashkenazi older man. The other one was a young woman. Her name was Rasha. I get her name because I think it's important. Rasha, um, uh, Atamni. And she is the first Israeli Arab female, uh, diplomat, uh, working in the foreign service. And she's been in, um, uh, South Korea. And she, by the way, she told, she mentioned that South Korea, they love Israel in South Korea. They studied the Talmud there, we've been told, right? <laughs> I guess. So that was nice. And most recently she was in Turkey and then she was brought back from Turkey. Wait, are you telling me that the apartheid state of Israel? Yes. <laughs> has an Israeli Arab female working yeah. in the foreign service? Yes. Yes. So, yes. And she has some interesting things to say about that. So she said, um, and, you know, when, when this first started, people were telling her, you know, you maybe want to be a little quiet about, you know, speaking Arabic when you're walking out of Knesset just because of the way the country's feeling. But she, she, she said, no, it's very important that I, that I speak Arabic because Israeli Arabs are, are part of the fabric of Israeli society. And she said that, and I thought this was a great comment. She said, Israeli Arabs are the only Arabs, only Arab community in the world that understands what's going on in Israel accurately. Because they know both sides. Or they have a sense of both sides. They, they, they're very, they're, they're Israelis that they felt more Israeli than Arab. And they, they feel, at least according to her, um, you know, they were, uh, volunteering, donating blood, giving food. Uh, they, they really rallied around their Israeliness in this time of crisis. And there were, there were, t- there were Arabs that were Israeli Arabs, uh, both Muslim and Bedouin were killed by, um, by Hamas that day. Um, and it really, you know, they're really trying to frame it. Hamas is trying to frame it as the Jews versus the Arabs. And, and this was, this was a whole frame shift. So I, I felt that so she was really interesting to listen to. Uh, there are other Christians and Muslims um, working in the foreign service, but she's the only woman. So she, she had an interesting perspective. Um, one of the concepts that, that the minister said is early Israel was, was a melting pot. But more recently, Israel is more of a pluralistic society that you can have multiple levels of identity and still be Israeli. And that may be. You know, they're trying to focus on what we have in common, not that, not not that what sets us apart. He also made the point that not only was the uh, this was Mordecai. He made the point not not only was the attack on Hamas, the military attack, is devastating. There was also a terrible social media campaign that was launched almost simultaneously, uh, including things like TikTok, and that has been you know very devastating. That's what we're kind of seeing all around the world right now. And as a diplomat, he's, he's very tuned into that. He also brought up the point of, you know, there are Holocaust deniers. There are now October 7th deniers. And we are seeing them. I've seen them in Raleigh. I've been at city council meetings, um, where, you know, Israel just went and invaded Gaza and killed 20,000 people just like that. You know, that October 7th never happened. And that's and actually, it's even important Spanish, to, I think it's important to just happen. mention whenever this subject comes up that the so-called moderate leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, his uh, doctorate, his thesis was right. was about Holocaust denial. Right. So right. so maybe he doesn't participate in the Holocaust itself, 
Uh, he's right. moderate after all, but at least he'll he'll deny it. Yeah, and then the last thing uh, he they focused a little bit was uh, UNRWA, which has become the United Nations Refugees Agency again. More and more is coming out right now, uh, but he was basically saying how he, they said three thousand of them are, are, are Hamas supporters of the uh, I forget it's eleven thousand or seventeen thousand working in, in the Gaza Strip. So. Big, big problem. Wait, when he, he's saying 3,000 are Hamas supporters and the other 8,000 don't support Hamas or they're just not active members? Because I not, assume maybe, they're all maybe supporters. Not active members. Maybe not active members. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, there was a news story a couple of days ago about how the, you know Israel proved that at least 12 uh, right. UNRWA employees were actually participating in the massacre. But I, yeah, I, 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 I very much doubt that there's, you know, as they call them, the righteous men of, of Sodom. Uh, maybe there's a couple of them in, in UNRWA, but uh, they support Hamas. He said his nephew uh, was injured in the Gaza Strip. He took fire from a UN from a from a UN uh, school. They were they were using a UN school to fire at him. So and they couldn't fire back. All right, so that was that was the next. The next thing we did is uh, we went to United uh, Hatzalah, and it's just worth mentioning this. So this agency, which I had heard of, but I didn't know much about it. Do you know about it? Uh, of course, yes. Was, yeah. So it was started in in in, um, in in the late um, in the late in the early nineties, basically because it, it takes too long for ambulances to get to different places. So they have this wonderful system all around Israel. 7,000 volunteers in all different cities, towns, villages, uh, men, women, uh, Jews, Christian, Arabs, and 900 Muslims as part of it. And their goal is to get to uh, any kind of um, EMS call within 90 seconds. And it, it, it's, you know, as a physician, I, I found it absolutely stunning. So we went to that headquarters and we saw the, we saw the whole computer system, how it works and, and, and how they do it. And then the guys manning the phones. Um, but it is my difference. I'll my, tell you, when we lived in Israel, we actually once uh, we we had a little bit of a health emergency, and uh, you know you call the number, which is like the official government number, the nine one one number, and the the Hatzala services they hear those calls, so they they were there in forty seconds. It was so fast they were there, and uh, then the guy got there, and turns out, uh, thank God, everything was okay, and he's like, you should you should cancel that call because they'll charge you. We don't charge anything, but they'll charge you. And I will tell you, by the way, Houston has its own independent, our community in Houston has its own independent Hatsala organization, volunteer EMS, EMTs, where um, you have a government, someone has a medical emergency, they call and there's people 24-7 that will uh, will respond. You know, we actually had the first uh, maiden recording of one of our new shows, the invite-only exclusive uh, podcast called the Torch Insider Podcast. And uh, Rabbi Wolby Sr. was there, and he's part of the Hatsala. So, in the middle of the recording, oh, wow. in the middle of the recording, he gets this, you know, his beeper goes uh. off, <laughs> and he's like, "I'm out of here." <laughs> so we just, uh, we just, uh, you just blazed out and put put a sirens on. You save go, a life. Go to save a life. Go to save a life. First priority. So then they were telling basically what happened on October seventh. You know, they went from about two thousand calls today. They got twelve thousand calls. They headed down within two hours to the south. A lot of the army groups that were first getting there had no medics involved. So they were, they were part of the medical team. Uh, two of their volunteers died. One was an Arab volunteer at the concert who was killed by Hamas and the other one was a Jewish volunteer. And they told this horrific story that they actually, they, there was a Bedouin doctor who was trying to tell Hamas, you know, um, um, you know, um, a Muslim 
Um, they shot up, they shot his legs. They, um, tied him to a, uh, a pole or a tree and they used him as bait to try to get other people to come save him. They, he actually survived, but just some of these horrific, horrific stories. And they're planning, they're worried about the North and they're trying to come up with how they're going to help if, if something happens, uh, in the North on a massive scale. So, um, very, very, uh, impressive in what, what they were able to mobilize. The next thing we did is we went to the Knesset and we met um, a member of the Knesset who, uh, her name is uh, Debbie uh, Bitan. Uh, she's in the centrist party, Yesh uh, Atid, which is Lapid's party. Uh, and she's actually a lawyer. Her goal of getting into uh, Knesset was to work on kids with special needs and, and really some of the social issues facing Israel. She lives in Strot, um and her house is near the police station that was that was taken over by Hamas and ransacked. And her daughter was living in Kafar Aza as Kafar. So she's dealing with these both things at the same time. And she's hearing on her daughter's phone, um, Hamas people yelling, uh, Al Akbar. I mean, just, just horrific things. So, um, she, she was stuck for a long time in, in her house and survived. She's now an evacuee herself. Uh, she's living in, in Tel, uh, in Tel Aviv. And she's interesting because um, and I heard this a second time that she, the reason she went to Tel Aviv is that in, in Jerusalem, most of the waiters uh, are are Arabs, and she's traumatized hearing Arabic. Wow. Um, and and then I heard later on that the hostages that were released and brought to hospitals, they had to be very careful to not have Arabic speaking physicians, nurses, staff, because a lot of you know, again, in our apartheid society, probably a third of the uh, physicians in Israel are, are, are uh, Arab Israelis, and a lot of nurses are. So they had to be careful with that. So that's something I hadn't even thought I hadn't even thought of. Um, and I'll just say this: this quote, she, you know, again, she called it a second Holocaust. Um, she said that at one point she had told her kids there are no monsters in this world and now she now she believes there are monsters in this world you know that because not only was there the 3,000 terrorists that came in there were also other uh, Gazan civilians that came in after them and, and, and did did horrific things um, she also tried to give some explanations of why the army um, you know how the army was spread all over and how it, it took a while to get down there and get organized I'm sure that'll come out with multiple reports you know, a year or two from now. And then um, the second to last thing we did that day, and again, this is just our second day, is we met with Avi Mayer, who is um, originally from the United States, but he's been living in Israel for many years. He's an editor uh, for the Jerusalem Post. And he just kind of gave us some perspective, just, you know, uh, that Israel's now on a, uh, it's a wartime routine, that things have settled down from four months ago, but there's still 130, 130 hostages, 100,000 displaced people. 200 reservists still called up. The tourism industry has been devastated. The economy is doing uh, poorly. Um, the, there, the war in public opinion all over the world is being lost by Israel. And it, this was the worst anti-Semitic incident since the Holocaust. So he threw all that out. And then he said, but on the other hand, there's more unity in Israel than he's seen in a long time. Even the uh, Haradim are mobilizing to support the war effort. Non-kosher restaurants have become kosher. Uh, to try to feed the soldiers, uh, the Arab communities and the Druze communities are mobilizing to, to, to help. So lots of, um, 
lots of stuff. He also, um, he, he basically, you know, we asked him as, as an editor what, you know, why the information is so twisted. He basically said, Hamas lies is a matter of policy. Uh, Israel tries to vet the truths. Uh, it may take time. They try to be scrupulous about it. The IDF is responsible. And he, he quoted that, that, that crazy story about when the Israeli rocket, quote unquote, killed 500 people at the hospital. Uh, and all the news agencies all over the world, including the New York Times, ran with that. It turned out it wasn't true. So, and he felt that there was Holocaust, the, the, the October 7th denial is like Holocaust denial. They're also trying to make it pain. It's called psychological pain for Israelis. And just describe some of the brutal, you know, the kids, just some of the brutality that happened to, to the kids. Um, and, and what, and, and how the society, the savagery was so bad. Um, you know, people burned alive, beheaded, raped, shot at close range. It, it just, you know, that, that's a huge amount of trauma in the society right now. That's why they really don't care, you know, what's going on with the, uh, with the Gazan civilians. And he said the other thing is the Me Too movement. If you believe all women, then why are we not believing Israeli women when it comes to, you know, the rape accusations? So. That was pretty intense. And then the last thing that happened that day, and I think this is a really, this was a really touching thing for everyone to hear. So we were staying in, in the Ramada in Jerusalem and, um, the hotel manager came and spoke to us. And the, the Ramada right now, the top, it's a 12 story hotel. The top two, uh, stories are for guests and the other 10 are for, uh, displaced, uh, Israelis, uh, from Sterot, uh, in the south. And from a couple of the northern places, Kirach, uh, Shmona and Shlomi. Um, and when we first got to the hotel, I mean, it, you just walk in there as chaos, uh, just kids running around, uh, all different, you know, young adults and older adults. We couldn't even get the elevator up because the kids were playing in the elevator all, all the time. So he took us through what, what happened. He basically, I think October 10th, people started arriving. And the government contacted them and said, yeah, we'll pay, but, you know, you don't have to give such good food. And, you know, you, you can just wash the sheets once a week and you don't have to do all this stuff. And, and they, and they basically said, no, we're going to treat them. We're going to treat them like guests. But then all these practical things happened. So, um, he, he was telling us how they needed washing machines. You know, they have all these families, big families, or a lot of these are Orthodox people with big families and have washing machines. So they had a, here are 10 washing machines and 10 dryers for the hotel. Um, and no one's paying for this. They have to figure out ways of doing it. So he's very proud of himself. He gets these 10 washing machines, 10 dryers. The women come down and they say, wait a minute, where, where's the wash soap? So he calls his wife to tell her like how proud he was himself getting these washing and dryers and how the women, you know, weren't, weren't grateful. And, and she was basically like, of course you should have gotten up the soap. So, um, but, Literally, they had uh, over a thousand evacuees in there, and then issues came up. Uh, there were 40, 50 women that were nursing. They needed to get freezers for the breast milk. Uh, they had a lot of kids. They had to enclose the tennis courts. They had to build a sukkah. They had a. They they started uh, teaching. They, they hired swim people to teach the kids how to swim. They set up um, a combination of. Um, uh, preschools and, and kindergartens, and they really try to help these people. And we were with them a lot in the hotel at the meals. And it is, it's surreal. I mean, it's, it's, um, and then there's issues that are coming up between like the, the Southern, you know, the, the more, 
the non-religious and the religious, you know, the left and the right. So there's some friction going on in the, in the hotel, in the hotel. There's, there's issues. There's some marital issues. Are you saying that you saw Israelis disagree? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, hard to believe. What you're describing in the Ramada hotel is probably true in dozens, scores of hotels yeah. across all, the country. All over Israel. All over Israel, yeah. yeah the the whole society is, is, is yeah. in, in upheaval. I mean, a, it, it was as high as 200, I think it's about 100,000 displaced still. That's a huge amount for a country of, you know, 9 million. And it's a very long uh-huh. time already. Yeah. Yeah, many, many months. And, you know, we see all these families. There's been, I, I think she said, I think he said there's been uh, over 20 births uh, in the four months that the people have been there. So it's just, it's a very difficult situation, but they're they're managing it. And we were, we were so privileged to be at that hotel. And, and, and that was a huge part of our experience, uh, just being there. I think that that added so much. It would have felt very weird to be in some luxury hotel and, you know, it just, it, it, this felt so right. It just felt so right. Um, and we had to use a service. We figured out we could use the service elevators and get up and down. So, um, all right. So that was day two. And then I'll, I'll, I'll just, the, the most intense day was day three. And that's when, uh, the, the, we did some volunteering in the morning. We went to a Moshav, um, and there's an agency called Laquette. Uh, which is a food bank for basically what they try to do is all wasted food. They, they try to make no wasted food in Israel and they, um, and they bring, um, and they bring all the food that they feed about 300,000 people. So we went and they don't have a lot of, um, they've lost a lot of their workers. A lot of the, the Thai and Asian workers have left. So we went down there. We worked for about an hour and a half. Our, our job was to clean lettuce and clean corn. And then it went into these machines for packaging. So we did that for an hour and a half. Again, it's not much. And then there was another group coming in after us, but at least, it, at least it was something we can do. But then it got really intense. We went down south and went to the Eras Crossing. So for the listeners who don't know where that is, that's the northernmost part of the Gaza Strip. Uh, it's basically, it's a checkpoint. It's like a border checkpoint where trucks and people pass through every day. It's, it's not a military post. It's, it, you know, supplies go into Gaza, guest workers come from Gaza, um, and it was attacked. Thirteen soldiers were killed that day. Ten were wounded. I think three were kidnapped. Uh, there were bullet holes and, and destruction all over, all over this crossing. Um, and we got very close. Uh, we literally were about a hundred feet from the, from the Gaza Strip. Uh, with the, with with the Israeli tanks and with uh, drones and jets flying overhead, and we're hearing artillery. I mean, that's how close we were. Um, we um, then, you know, after they're showing us the whole the, what had happened, we then had lunch with a bunch of the soldiers, uh, and that was just wonderful. There was a bunch, most of these were young kids. Um, I wrote a couple comments down. They were young. Most of them were Mizrahim. Some of them were lone soldiers. We had one from Montreal, one from France with us. This group happened to be a little more religious, so it was all male, very patriotic. And then a bunch of these kids uh, had been, they, these were, um, they were combat soldiers. And they had to train eight months in the Negev and only about, um, I think he told me 90 out of 140 make it through. And yet they were, they were sent up to the north and nothing much was happening in the north in terms of combat. So they had just, they had just been moved down to Gaza two days before we saw them. And what struck 
Phyllis and I, my, my wife and I, was that they were itching to get into the fight. I mean, this patriotic thing, they were just itching to get into Gaza, which, you know, again, they're young, but it was, it just goes to show that the, the spirit that they had in defending the society and, and how Israelis feel. Very, very intense with these, with these young, with these young men. And then we went down to Kafar Aza, which is, uh, one of the kibbutzim that is, um, uh, a kilometer, less than a kilometer from the, uh, from the border with the Gaza Strip. Um, and basically it was, we were there for about two hours. Some of the more horrific things that, that you're going to see just in terms of some of the destruction of, of, of the areas, not, not only the, uh, the 60, I think it was 63 dead and maybe 19 or 20 kidnapped, but just the, you know, the destructions of some of the areas, um, and some of the stories we we heard were, were absolutely horrific. The, the attack was extremely well orchestrated. Um, they actually had paragliders, these coming in and landing. Um, they knew where the armory was in the kibbutz. Um, they knew how to infiltrate the fence. And the six guys who were in charge of the armory were all killed trying to get to the armory and to get their weapons. Hamas knew exactly where to, where to, where to fight, where to, where to, um, where to position themselves. Um, they, the army got there, the, the kibbutz was invaded at, at about seven. The army didn't get there until about 11 to 12. Um, and it was just a horrific scene of them going, you know, door to door. Um, and one of the worst stories we heard, and I think probably some of your listeners will, will have heard this was that there were, they, um, there was, they got into a room, uh, into one of the houses there and, um, they had two tw- twin 10 year olds and a mother and a father. And the mother went out to get some milk or something for the kids. And the Hamas terrorist shot her. And then the dad came out and they shot and killed him. So they killed both the parents. They left the two, um, 10 month olds in the, uh, in the house screaming for 14 hours as bait again to get people that would try to come rescue them. And, um, you know, just, just horrific, horrific, horrific stuff. And it really looked like a, uh, both a war, a war zone and a crime scene. I mean, it, it, you just almost had to see it. And we have two very good friends of ours who live in that, in that kibbutz and they were not there that weekend. Um, I may have told you the story, but he, um, he donated a kidney to a, uh, an Israeli and, um, the family as a, as a nice gesture, a bunch of months later, uh, invited them. They, they spent some time in the North and that was on October 7th when, when that happened. But we went through the kibbutz and they joined us on that tour. And the wife, uh, our good friend Sharona had, uh, she had been back to the kibbutz once or twice, but she had never been to the back areas where all these young people were, were killed and taken hostage and all this building was destroyed. So it was just intense, not only seeing it with our group, but just seeing it through her eyes for the first time. Um, and what was, again, it, it has to be mentioned, these kibbutzim are, are usually the more liberal areas of Israel. And one of the women I met, an older woman, her son was one of the six guys who was killed trying to get to the armory. Um, she has been for years. She meets Gazan citizens at the border uh, and takes them to Israeli hospitals and brings them back. Um, so the, these are the people that were being killed. Um, and, and 
unbelievably she's forgiving. I mean, she was one of the few Israelis that I met that was actually forgiving, forgiving. So that was, that was the most intense, intense, intense day. And I can't remember right now. We went to the wall. I think it was that day. So we got back to Jerusalem and went to the wall and we needed it because this trip was a, usually when you go to Israel, it's historical, it's archaeology, it's culture. This was all, you know, intense of what's going on, war, you know, modern politics, Israeli society. It was just good to, to plug into some spiritual stuff in, in Jerusalem. So we, we got about an hour and a half in, in Jerusalem at the wall and that was, that was great. And, and I'll, I'll just say this for people thinking about going to Israel. There was no one at the wall. I, I've been there six times. There was no one there except for, except for some ultra religious Haredi that were there. But the usual tourists that you see there, you just didn't see them. It was very, 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 uh, surreal. We were there in the, uh, early, uh, part of the evening. So that was, that was the third day. And then the last day. Um, was they try to do some more uplifting stuff. So we went in the morning to uh, Yaffa to a school called the Hand in Hand Schools in Israel. And these are schools, Israeli um, education is divided into, uh, I believe, secular, religious, and Muslim. I think they all have their own separate schools. And that's kind of the way the societies evolve. And these are schools that are trying to break that pattern. They basically have uh, Muslims, Jews, and Christians in these schools. You know, what the goal is, if you if you learn to, if you meet each other early, that will ultimately help. So the, these schools, so we went into one of these schools and we spoke to some of the teachers and, and one of the fundraisers. And, and it, it's a good, you felt good about it. And, and some of the things they were saying, it's what makes it so hard is even now with this school, one of the teachers is in Gaza fighting and one of the uh, other teachers had some family killed in Gaza, so it's it's hard to keep the fabric of the school together. But they really had tried. family had Arab family killed in Gaza. Arab family, yeah. Right. So an Israeli Arab family had some relatives killed in Gaza. So just think how how frictional that could be in a school. So they worked very hard to you know to to to, to try to bring this together. And the school is like K to six, and then the, the kids then separate, but. Interesting. They followed up with 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 some of their graduates, and, and they're more likely to be in in public service. So that that felt a little bit, you know, a way to heal. Um, so we did that, and then Greensboro has a, a partnership program with a um, with um, a city in Israel. Um, it is uh, uh, Hadera. Yeah, so we went to Hedera and we actually uh, met with some wonderful teenagers, Israeli teenagers, um, a couple of whom have been to the United States, but they're, they're supported with this program where to bring Israelis and Americans closer together, not just, so it's not just a charity thing that we're actually exchanging people and cultures. And, and that was very, very nice. We sat around the uh, table with a bunch of young, uh, I think we had about five young uh, teenage girls who were focused and not on their phones and, and it was just, it was just very, very nice. But they did tell us they were able to get out of science if they did come, if they came to this thing with us. So, um, you managed to get so five nice. teenage girls without their phones for how long? It was an hour. Wow. Pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. These are te- these are teenagers probably to the, I think they were like 15, 16 without their phones for, for Israeli kids. That, that's very unusual. So, and then we ended up, uh, with two last things. We went to the Israeli trauma coalition. 
at the very end. And the Israeli Trauma Coalition, which I didn't know anything about, is really for psychological trauma. And this was started at the uh, time of the Second Intifada. Um, and, and they're basically to support um, uh, natural disasters, man-made disasters, shooters. Um, and they, they basically um, focus on um, individual therapy, couple therapy, group therapy. So after October 7th, they've been overwhelmed. They've gone from 250 therapists to 1,100 therapists. A lot of them have just been volunteers that are in the private practice that have gone to help them. Um, and they basically said, you know, all the assumptions that Israelis live under were shattered on October 7th, uh, that the government will, will can protect them, the army can protect them, the home can protect them, uh, their parents can protect them, the families can protect them. Um, it all it all disappeared. So the society is under again this trauma, and they are and they are working to um, to address this all over the all over the country. They set up um, centers in, in Ashkelon and the Negev and the Gaza envelope and the Bedouin even the Bedouin villages. So all over Israeli societies. So that's how we ended, and, and we had one last talk at nine o'clock at night before we left. We had a, a professor come speak to us. Um, and he was just basically again reiterating a lot of this, how, how the Israeli fabric was ripping apart on October 6th. And then this all came together and he was saying that, and this was interesting, for reserve duty, uh, when they called up people, uh, they got 170% of the people that they called up. So people were just coming, showing up that weren't even supposed to show up. And people that weren't called up, his son wasn't called up and he was, he was like really, anxious to get called up. I mean, that, that's how, that's how people felt. Um, and I think what he, what he was basically saying is, um, Israeli society has come together wonderfully. And he talked about a, a situation where two brothers and a cousin from a settlement. So a, a, a religious, um, nationalistic settlement in, in Judea or Samaria, uh, they heard about this on Shabbat. They even, even though they're, they're, uh, Shomer Shabbat, they got in their car, they went to uh, Kibbutz Berry, and they probably saved a 100 people. And of those three of them, one of the brothers were killed, but they probably saved a 100 people. Um, so the question that he asked, and, and he said, we don't know what's going to happen after. Are we going to revert back as a society to October 6th, or are we going to be at October 8th? And that, that's kind of the question that we that we left Israel with our heads spinning thinking about. Um, so I, I'm so grateful, Rabbi, that you've had me on for this because I think the most important thing that we can do when we get back here, again, we didn't do a lot of work on this trip. We were not out there in the farms picking things, you know, doing that. But but our goal, and I know the Greensboro Group is really pushing this, is to educate. We, we need to let people know what's going on in Israel, how the society, how traumatized it is, uh, how resilient it is and how fragile it is. And, and, and we Americans and, and, and Jews all over the world have to wake up as my, you know, this, this whole issue of, well, we're not anti, we're not anti-Semitic, we're anti-Zionist. As my son Julian has told me, you know, that may have been, uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism may have been a different art, uh, argument in, 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 uh, 1920, but in, in 2024, where the majority of the world is, um, majority of the Jews in the world live in Israel. If you're anti-Israel, you're anti-Jew, if you're anti-Semitic. Um, and I, I think that 
we as a as a country uh, and as Jews have to wake up and we have to be active and we have to be activists and we have to let people know and and keep Israel, you know, at the top, top, top of our agenda because this is not over. It's far from over. We have the Hezbollah issues. Uh, we have the Houthis. We have still some of the militias in in Syria. We have Iran to deal with. I mean, it, it is it is far from over. So. Anyway, I appreciate well, the even if time. anti-Zionism, anti-Zionism, and anti-Semitism are not the same thing. The the Venn diagram of anti-Zionists <laughs> and anti-Semites looks very close to a circle. Right, very right. close to a circle. And I, I love your framing, Doc. About your grand takeaway is, you know, there was a world, there was an Israel on October sixth, and that was shattered, that was torn asunder on October seventh. And the question is, what emerges from? The ruins from the ashes, from the, you know, the, the crumbling trauma of this terrible attack. And, you know, I, I spoke to a friend of mine. He was an elite soldier for 10 years and he moved, since moved to California. They, they always say that's the Israeli dream. The American dream is, you know, you have a nice car, a nice family, two, you know, one, one, one point eight kids and a dog, right? The Israeli dream is to move to America, right? Make it big. So he moved to America and, and, uh, you know, he lives there and, but he was called up to reserve duty. And I had a very long conversation with him, uh, last week. And he told me something which I found to be very profound. It was a, a different perspective. He, he became a Balchuva. So it's, it's kind of common for, well, it happens at least. I don't know if it's common. There's a certain trend where Israelis, when they're in Israel, there's a lot of tension, like it's, like we talked about the argument, very argumentative uh, society, and it's, and everyone's on top of each other, and there's the religious and the Jews and the Arabs, and they're everyone's kind of jockeying for their little space. It's an intense society. There's a certain vibrancy that kind of causes the you know the a certain inevitability of 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 friction. Israelis come to America. Sometimes they have more receptiveness to religion. You know, there's not as much, you know, they, they, they don't view the, you know, the American religious Jews in quite the same way that they view the Israelis. It's not so much politics and things like that. And they want to kind of gravitate towards more Jews and people that can speak Hebrew. So that happens a lot. So he became, he became a Balchuva in America. Yeah, many years he was living here. He went back to Israel. And I was talking to him about his experiences. And he said to me, he said something unbelievable. He said, the Talmud says that if the Jewish nation keeps Shabbos two weeks in a row, Messiah comes. And he's like, these Jews, they're such stiff-necked people. They're not willing to even try it. They're not willing to try it. Just to experiment, just to, just to remove it. Just remove the possibility of this, of this being true. So I think part, you know, part of this discussion of what does October 8th look like, I think part of it's certainly going to be a reexamination of the Jews as Jews, Jews as in the historical biblical sense. What does it mean? What does it mean to be a Jew? I'm sure you picked up some of that uh, as well on your trip. I'm certainly hearing rumblings of it. You know, you talked about the the fissures that existed in, on October sixth. I'm sensing, you know, the rumblings, murmurings of those fissures once again reemerging, and I think it's a very a very powerful framing of, of where Israel's at, that there was a world that was shattered and how the world will change is still yet to be determined. And of course, 
you know, where, where we're from afar. You at least went there. I wish I could go there. Uh, I appreciate that you went there and you shared your, your tapes with us and your stories with us. It, it really means a lot to me to know that, you know, me and Blake, we played a small part in, in helping. Big part. Uh, big okay. Part. It's a big part in helping nudge you to go. I'm sure you would encourage everyone else to go. You said it was a life altering experience. That's that. Those are your yeah. words. My cousin and a very good friend of mine just, uh, just went. So I, I and they're, um, they should be getting back soon. So it'll be very interesting to hear it. So if anyone could go, if anyone has the ability to go, certainly, certainly go. Of yeah. course, if it's just to support our brothers and sisters and to empathize with them and to show them we care and, and, you know, to go to the restaurants and go to, you know, yeah. buy stuff from the tourist sites that have been so devastated. Uh, that's, of course, something, but also to, to try to feel the pain and, uh, the, suffer alongside them and, 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 and cry with them and, you know, hold their hand and, and try, try to do something to, to identify with them and to empathize with them. And, you know, we hope and we pray that, uh, the world that emerges, both the big world and the Jewish world that emerges after things are settled is a better one. And hopefully the sense of, of unity and, and interpeace or international or intranational, uh, peace that, and, and collaboration that you witnessed and that we all hear about that will endure. And please God, the soldiers will be successful on their mission and the war aims should be achieved and the, the hostages should uh, come back and hopefully we will all merit to see peace, peace, world peace and the Jewish people, please God, coming back to their sacred, sac- uh, sacrosanct mission of, of being a light to the nations and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, seeing the restoration of uh, the House of David. Hate to say it because some people like democracy. I always had a plan, you know, like the, when those, when you had those elections again and again and again, it never you know, yielded uh, a result that, uh, that brought us a government. I told some friends here the torch that I said, this is it. The democracy doesn't work. Let's restore the Davidic monarchy. But we hope, uh, for Messiah for, for that, uh, that time of, of, of universal knowledge of Hashem and universal, uh, universal submission to Hashem. And of course, uh, the peace and the, the glorious, utopian times that that will bring. I want to thank you again for coming to the podcast and sharing your stories and sharing what you learned, bringing us with you along this uh, this journey. Um, what can I say? I salute you. I applaud you. And it's great to have you on the podcast. It's, it's uh, wonderful, Rabbi. I just totally enjoyed it. And I'm glad, you know, if, if one person hears me tonight and goes to Israel, I, it, it's all worth it. So. Well, I, I, I hope so. And, uh, and even if you don't, do what you can. Do what you can to influence others, to, you know, to, to advance the fight cause. The fight. Of, fight the fight, exactly. Fight the fight, advance the cause. Because Lord knows, we know that the, the other side is fighting their fight very wrestling. You, you were saying that <laughs> it was in the Raleigh yeah. City Council. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole lot. That'll be a whole, uh, whole lot. Okay, we have to do a follow-up episode of that. But thank you so much. Of course, my email address is rabbywallbeachim.com. Doc, it was a pleasure. It was a joy. Am Yisrael Chai. May we hear only good times uh, from our good news, good tidings from our brethren in the Holy Land. Thank you so much, Dr. Kritz, for joining us on the podcast this evening. Thank you, Rabbi.